Chapter Twenty Nine of Citadel of Fear by Gertrude Barrows Bennett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Citadel of Fear, Chapter Twenty Nine A Golden Flask. The black god's reply to Maxatla struck Cullen as highly incongruous. He wondered what the young captain would say to it, and so wondering, opened his eyes. With the suddenness of a blow, the basin, that had been so obligingly transparent as his eyelids, shut in solid around him. The demon face above flashed back into Kennedy's, with its sneer and its enormous glasses. It occurred to Cullen that he had been dreaming. But he did actually lie in that golden basin, and there was actually a hand on his shoulder. By twisting his cramped neck a little, he could see it. If it were Mexatla's, however, that young warrior possessed marvelously delicate fingers. Desiring above everything to identify the owner of that hand, Cullen tried to raise himself. The ropes which had been on his arms were gone, his coat had been removed, and the flannel shirt under it half unfastened. But though free of bonds, he was so weak that the Lord of Fear easily pushed him back and held him there. An aesthetic wearing off he heard Kennedy mutter, and then Mexatla spoke again. "'I shall not go, not without my lord. Between us there is the golden thread that may not be broken.' "'What on earth are you raving about now?' "'You are as discourteous as evil,' she retorted quite calmly. "'When first I saw my lord, that night he came to your pitiful fortress of fear, and I knew that its end was destined, when first I saw him in the passage outside my door, great and kind and noble, then I saw that which glimmered between us. Sentiarl, who weaves the fruit-fields on her looms, spins also the golden thread, for a sign between those who are destined. To not all is it given, but none who receive it may break it. Through all the distance I felt his need calling me." "'Distance!' sneered Kennedy. You can't have got very far away from here in that costume." "'I have been far,' was the retort, given with placid dignity that nothing could shake. "'For my dress it was woven for me by the Lady Astrid, my own dear mother, ere she was taken home by the gods. Into it she wove many charms of love, and because of those charms, while I wear it, no great harm may befall me.' Oh, is that why you've hung on to it like grim death all this time? Lord, I never find out anything about your actions without uncovering a new superstition. You'd be an interesting study, if I had time for it. Now, before you clear out of here, tell me in three words where you have been, and, by Jove, you know what killed Marco, or did you do it yourself? I had no need because I spoke some thoughts of him and the vile passion he called love, because I promised to die before I would mate with him, he loosed upon me the devil-man there. So he was slain by one whom my prayers brought to aid me." The leisurely quiet statement brought an impatient grunt from Kennedy, but for Cullen something at last slid off his conscience that had lain like a deadening weight. Repent Marco's killing? there had been cause, and to spare, for it. He had never supposed that Khan's murderous attack on the girl had not been only countenanced, but commanded. Weakling? So are the rattlesnake and the Gila monster, but men hardly hesitated to crush them for that. Cullen stirred again, and Kennedy's attention came back to him. "'You go,' he said to the intruder. "'I'll attend to your case later.' Go, or I swear I'll loose that on you which prayer won't save you from." "'I shall not go,' she repeated. "'Is there no warning that you will heed? Have you forgotten how, upon the first visit of my lord, your fortress of fear quivered, groaning in every stone and timber? To one less blind than you, it would have been sign enough that his coming presaged the end. "'You little fool, this house is centuries old. A place so old as this will often shake and settle by its own weight. You have made it the seat of Nakakiaotl, and only a god could shake it. The lord of the air is patient, but I think that tonight he will set his foot at last on his enemy's neck. A great wind blows without, 
a great and awful wind. I tell you, the feathered serpent tears even now at the roof-beams of this temple of evil. The end is near, and—ah! Even Kennedy started, drawing back from the font and casting an anxious eye about his workroom. As on the evening of Cullen's first visit, a long-drawn, grating moan was shaking the very walls, a strange, ominous, vibrating sound that seemed to come from everywhere at once, and brought with it a feeling of nausea and vague terror. It was answered by a hideous, concerted wail from the monstrosities of the swamp. At his master's back appeared Genghis Khan, chattering and cringing. Released for a moment, Cullen sat up. Where he got the strength for that act he did not know, unless it had flowed into him from the fragile fingers on his shoulder. There she stood, his dusk lady, the cloak flung back from her beautiful, worn green gown, one hand still laid on her lord, and on her face the look of a pale young prophetess. "'Warning!' she cried. "'Warning! Maker of hatreds, the end of patience is upon you!' Like a pale young prophetess, the dusk lady stood, but her voice rang on silence, for the groaning sound had passed and with its cessation the creatures of the mire had resumed their habit of quiet. All seemed as before, all as before, save that the swamp's level seemed strangely higher, and over its edge at one side the head of a serpent had appeared. It crept forward a very little way and lay still. Unlike the gatekeeper, this serpent was black, black with a polished gleam black like the teotetl, the sacred marble, from which had been carved a body for the maker of hatreds. As the sound and vibration ceased, and Kennedy's hasty glance discerned nothing come of them, he turned angrily toward the girl. Then he swore, and a moment later had flung both arms about his resurgent captive. But from some source Cullen had certainly derived an influx of energy, enough at least for a struggle. Kennedy addressed a sharp command to his apish ally, but Khan held off, cowering back toward the dais, and at last springing upon it to crouch beside its deity. Cullen had one leg over the basin's edge. The immense weight of the font prevented its oversetting, but some of the gold containers set on its ledge went spinning down to roll across the floor. After one futile effort to aid her lord by loosening her captor's grasp, the girl stooped for one of these containers. She took it without selection at the hazard of desperation. All she knew of them was that they held stuff of diabolical power, and a desperate woman is not particular about her weapons. She rose, a gold flask in her hands. It must have held about a pint, and it was carved all over with writhing, lizard-like forms. It possessed a crystal stopper that stuck but could be twisted out she proved it. Meantime the Lord of Fear recalled that he had other servants than Khan, and raised his head, mouth open for command. It was well for Colin that in the same moment he had wrenched himself fairly free. Calm as she seemed, his dusk lady proved capable of an impetuosity as unconsidered as had more than once carried her lord into trouble. To fling the contents of a flask at two struggling men, trusting to hit the one and miss the other, requires either great recklessness or supreme faith in one's own aim. But impetuosity for once was justified. Because of his sudden efforts and wrenching away, only a few minute drops of the stuff sprinkled Cullen and they on his hand. Though he hastily wiped the hand on his trousers, it was painful for days afterward. Kennedy, however, was less fortunate. He released his prisoner and staggered back with a short, stifled shriek and it was the last sound, save one, that was to be heard from him. He had clapped both hands over his face, the human hand and the paw, but not before Cullen caught one glimpse of it. A dripping, darkening, purplish expanse, of which the features in that flash of time had assumed the most curiously blurred appearance. A strong odor as of bitter almonds filled the air. It is likely that the liquid in the flask was what Kennedy had referred to as the second solution. Very probably the application of it in this wholly unscientific manner would not have produced the beautiful results that he so much admired. The question, however, is theoretic, 
for as a subject of this variation of process he did not last long enough to be termed a decisive experiment. As he reeled backward there began a recurrence of that great, inexplicable vibration, and with its coming a wild rage appeared to seize upon the marsh's grisly inhabitants. Transmuted or not, they retained the instinct of beasts to sense disaster, and if they had any share in the intellect of man they displayed it now by behaving as man does in a panic. The rage that gripped them was of fear, not malice. Archer Kennedy, head in arms, limbs wobbling like an animated straw man's, staggered blindly to the pavement's very edge, and instinctively Cullen shouted a warning. But this third effort to save a worthless life was vain. Out of the rushes beyond a slimy mass heaved, lashing out with a dozen squid-like arms. It was hard to conceive how such an acephalous mass of squirming tentacles had ever known a master, but the grace to obey was whelmed under now in a more natural instinct. Panic makes no discriminations. Round the lord of fear a tentacle whipped, clung and contracted, and as it caught him a last sound passed what was left of the man's lips. Cullen heard, the word was pitched in a key so low and different from the other noises. God. Prayer, perhaps, but much more likely habit. It was his favorite ejaculation. Cullen, who, not being God, could not help him, turned away his eyes, and when he looked back a score of nameless, fighting creatures were at the edge, with Archer Kennedy somewhere under them, wallowed down in mud. As he had lived, so he died, without comprehension but he was an empty, negligible thing, and behind him he left the real master, the black, discarnate hate for whose will he had been the blind channel. End of chapter 29 Chapter 30 of Citadel of Fear by Gertrude Barrows Bennett This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Citadel of Fear Chapter 30 The Gate Lodge Again McClellan! Well, upon my word! Rose descended from the car and advanced, hardly knowing whether to be amused or indignant. They had come through Undine a few minutes earlier, and by following the pike had found Reed's place without difficulty. But they were not the first on the scene. Two cars were standing outside Gerard's ill-omened gates one drawn up by the wall, the other fairly blocking the road. As Rhodes' car halted, a man had turned away from the first car, and under the road light Rhodes had no trouble in knowing him. The stout detective gave something very like a guilty start, but recovered instantly. "'Ain't this your car, Mr. Rhodes?' he demanded, as casually as though their meeting here was the most natural event. The other two passengers from Rhodes' car had descended now. Cullen did come here," exclaimed Cleona tensely. "'That is our car that he left outside.' "'I knew it!' McClellan seemed affably triumphant. "'Forrester,' indicating a second man who had emerged from the car's shadow, "'he says she ain't, but you can't fool me on a car I've once rode in. I says—' "'Mr. McClellan, pardon me, but did you come out in search of my car, or because you changed your mind about the possible dangers of the house behind those gates?' Now don't get sarcastic again, please. I'm a conscientious man, and I thought, since you were so worked up over it, we might as well run out and look things over. But seeing you've brought your wife along, I guess you drew it a little stronger than you meant over the phone, eh?" "'Tony,' Cleona pulled at his sleeve, "'my Cullen's in there, and we stand talking.' "'The gate is unlocked,' Bjornson called over his shoulder. "'I've left the shotgun for you, Rhodes, and taken the rifle. Coming? He was already pushing through the gates. Rifle! snapped McClellan. Hey there, mister. I don't know who you are, but you haven't any license to walk in that man's grounds carrying weapons. Come back here. Mr. McClellan, please, please! In her distress, Cleona caught the stout detective's hand. Don't stop us. I tell you, the things may be in there that left that awful trail of blood down our hill. Do you want my brother's death on your soul? If your brother had seen fit to tell me of his suspicions, 
began McClellan, but was interrupted by a series of sharp, quick reports. "'That fool!' he ejaculated, and sprang for the gates. But once inside, his intent to check Bjornsson and confiscate the rifle underwent sudden alteration. Behind the gate-lodge a curious scene was being enacted. The Norsemen stood there, beating with the rifle's heavy stock at what seemed a tangled mass of writhing white fire. "'Can't kill! A thing! This! With bullets!' he shouted against the wind. "'Got that shotgun, Rhodes? Quick! Oh, watch out there! Watch out!' The tangle of fire had fairly rolled away from him and toward the drive. An automatic spat viciously from McClellan's hand. He didn't know what he was shooting at, but even his conservatism admitted a need of shooting. Rhodes turned, only to have the shotgun thrust into his hands, by an excited little figure that had dashed out to the car and back again while the men were thinking about it. A second later the mar of a ten-gauge duck-gun shattered the night. Rhodes, who had let go with both barrels at once, staggered back, but the double dose of number four at that close range had been very effective. The writhing fire fairly flew asunder and quivered almost instantly to darkness. "'What is it?' McClellan's voice shook suspiciously. "'For heaven's sake, what is it?' Young Forrester, who had stood his ground though unarmed, bent forward. "'Some kind of big white snake,' he said coolly. "'All tangled up with a tree branch. It's still wriggling. Going to plug it some more, Mr. Rhodes?' for that gentleman was hastily shoving fresh shells into the gun's empty chambers. "'No need,' Bjornsson had stooped for a closer inspection than Forrester's. "'It's blown into three pieces now. When I came past the lodge,' he continued, "'I heard a rustle, and then this—this this creature came rolling out the door. Odd about the branch. Look here. The end of it was driven clean through the thing's body, just behind the head. Humph! I wonder who did that now. O'Hara, do you think?' He would have finished the job, not left the thing alive and dangerous," judged Rhodes. Alive, but not dangerous. I think this is O'Hara's work. Above them the naked branches lashed, as if blown by the gusty laughter of some invisible giant. The gatekeeper's hard-dying fragments writhed feebly, but there was no light in them now. "'Golly! Watch it bleed!' said Forrester. He obeyed his own inelegant recommendation cheerfully, but the others turned aside, rather sickened. "'Come away, Cleona,' pleaded Rhodes. "'Let Forrester stay with you in the car while the rest of us go in. I suppose,' he queried of McClellan, "'that you are convinced now?' "'Guess something's wrong,' conceded the detective heavily. "'Any man who keeps an illuminated boa constrictor like that in his gate-lodge will bear looking at.' And just then, through the shouting wind, a mighty reverberation shook the air—a long, dull, roaring sound, followed by a kind of tearing crash. Both noises came from deeper within the grounds, and before Rhodes could interfere Cleona was off up the drive. She had not even a pistol for self-protection, but self was not concerning her. In a rush to the rescue she no more stopped to consider what she would do on arrival than the dusk lady had thought twice before returning here after her lord. The main consideration was to get on the spot as quickly as possible. But unlike Talapalan's child, Cleona was followed by human reinforcements. What might otherwise have been a justifiably cautious advance was made at a reckless run that only caught up with its feminine leader in the shadow of the porte cochere. End of chapter 30《Chapter Thirty One of Citadel of Fear by Gertrude Barrows Bennett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Citadel of Fear. Chapter Thirty One A Strange Battlefield. Somehow Cullen got out of the font and onto his feet. Did the floor really heave under them, or was it the dimness of his brain that made it seem so? The door! The door! cried the dusk lady, and clutched at his arm to pull him toward it. But Cullen was looking to the marsh. Would its inhabitants regard a former command of their masters as more sacred than his person? They were already at the forbidden boundary-line on all sides, 
and only the fact that they were fighting very energetically among themselves hindered their crossing it. The idea of weaponless flight with such pursuers at their heels was unattractive to Colin. His eye fell on the spade lying in the golden chest. It was leaf-shaped, pointed, and looked heavy. Rather unsteadily, he made for the only weapon in sight, and in the act perceived a new development. Out of the marsh, not one black serpent but a dozen were invading the solid pavement. They writhed, crept, advanced, flowed into one, and suddenly, under that sinister invasion, a whole section of the floor sank away and was swallowed. Cullen cried out wildly, "'The marsh! Tis the devilish marsh itself coming in!' But he was wrong. Not the marsh, but what had flooded the marsh was carrying its mire across the floor. The ooze was no longer taking the form of exploring serpents, but coming on in long ripples, like water over breaking ice. And not the floor alone was affected. The old granite piles of the house were sinking, crumbling, while the rotted beams they supported sagged and bulged downward. But another force than water was at work tonight. Above the roofs, like the blow of a giant's fist, something struck the cupola. The candles burning beside Nakaki Otto's dais flickered wildly. Cullen felt a great blast on his cheek, and looked up to see night sky roofing the shaft, stars obscured by scudding vapors of cloud. The outer gale had lifted the cupola bodily, had flung it far and shattered, and its afterbreath struck down the shaft like an eager promise of freedom. The foul mist swirled and cleared. All had happened so swiftly that Cullen, stooping for the one visible weapon, had barely time to raise it before the first goblin brute crossed the line. Combat in the open would have been folly, and sweeping his dusk lady with him, the Irishman made a rush for the doorway. Under their running feet the floor had a give and resilience like thin, tough ice. Reaching the door, Cullen would have closed it but lacked time. On the very threshold he turned to meet the first assailant a thing of innumerable legs, rather like a magnified centipede, but whose head belonged somewhere in the mammalian scale. It was a hybrid of fancy worth looking at, but Cullen was unappreciative. He was very weak, and the spade seemed not only heavy, but heavy as lead. When the many-legged brute came at him he struck out feebly. It dodged like lightning, came at him from another angle, and the end came near being immediate. But the floor, an inch deep in water now, chose that opportune moment to subside altogether with a long, gurgling swish. Cullen had pushed the dusk lady through the doorway, and himself stood just inside it. The footing there remained solid enough, but the creature of too many legs found itself wallowing in thin mud and much impeded thereby. The floor had gone to pieces under it like a breaking flow. Cullen thrust with his spade, and this time was lucky as to bury its point in one of the beast's eye-sockets. It screamed horribly and plugged its bleeding head in the liquid mire. Cullen looked for its mates, but in looking beheld a sight so strange that he nearly forgot the peril. More than the floor had gone under. The font and every other piece of gold in the place was gone, but the dais of Nakakia Otto with its black canopy had not sunk. Like a somber islet on a surface of rippling ebony it lay, not floating apparently, but solid as if supported by a column of stone. There still crouched Genghis Khan, and there the black god sat unmoving. But that last was not strange, for how may marble, however sacred, move of its own volition? The strangeness was above the dais, above the canopy. Though the candelabra had sunk out of sight, though the livid vegetation of the marsh had been crushed under the inundation by its inhabitants, the place was by no means in darkness. Something hung in the mid-air now, globular as had been the evil fungi, transparent, pale as the ghost of an old moon against the sky of day, but growing brighter with each passing moment, hung in mid-air where only vacancy had been. Out of nothing it had come to illuminate all with a sweet light, mellow as a sunset's afterglow. It was bright as a clear winter moon in a black sky, brighter, not transparent at all. A great gust roared down the shaft, circling the dais with the sweep of a whirlwind. 
It sucked the breath from Cullen's lungs and drove it back again. He straightened. That was clean air. Air to breathe and be strong, but but hot as the desert sand wind. That fireball, so mysteriously appearing from nowhere, was giving off more than light. Having passed in a few seconds from pale shadow to dazzling brilliance, it hung less like the moon than a fiery replica of old Saul himself, and the hot wind circled the shaft. "'My lord! my lord!' cried a sweet, excited voice in Cullen's ear. "'I think the gods battle to-night!' the gods! So have I seen Tanathiu grow to glory in the heart of his temple. The rushing wings of the feathered serpent beat fiercely by. Talalok of the floods is with us. But the black god is strong, strong! See how he sits unharmed! The flood may not rise further, nor the fire descend, and his servants lie on in the flood. Oh, my lord! Back there! Get back! Cullen had wrenched his eyes from the fierce focus of light that overhung Nakakyaatl. Whether the Dusk Lady were right or no in thinking this a battlefield of gods, he knew for sure that battle for a man was toward, and that man himself. The liquid blackness before him was suddenly all a splash with swimming terrors. Heads came up at him from every direction, no longer tearing at one another's throats, but reaching toward his with a unanimity of purpose that called for instant defense. The Dusk Lady came of a warrior people. At his rough command she sprang back out of his way and the fight was on. The fire-globe grew more radiant, the hot, pure wind circled the shaft, and Cullen strangely forgot that he had been drained of strength. In his hands the heavy spade was like a feather, like a living feather of fire, like a sword of fire there came to him a great joy and exhilaration. He smote and thrust joyously. The strength of ten was in him, and a vigor that was endless, undying. The great wind circled the shaft, and across the black water, beneath Nakakyaatl's canopy, two slit eyes had opened wide and glaring in a rage more frightful than any mortal anger. End of chapter 31 Chapter Thirty Two of Citadel of Fear by Gertrude Barrows Bennett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Citadel of Fear, Chapter Thirty Two The Battle of the Doorway. Everything's dark as a pocket, complained McClellan, and this flash won't work. Batteries wore out. Say, Forrester, give me your flash. He's outside with my wife said a voice in the dark beside him. "'No, I ain't,' contributed another voice cheerfully. "'Here you are, Mac. Sorry, Mr. Rhodes, but your lady here would come along.' A white beam snapped into existence, disclosing a quiet, orderly-looking reception hall. They had entered it from the porch through a door that stood invitingly open, and though Rhodes had begged Cleona to remain outside, and hastily asked the younger detective to see that she did, neither request, it appeared, had been respected. The two had followed close on the leader's heels, and now the whole party stood together near the hall's center. "'Don't believe that crashing noise came from here,' began McClellan. "'Hush!' said Cleona. "'Listen!' "'Sounds like a crowd of people yelling from a long way off,' Forrester commented after a moment. "'From beneath our feet,' corrected Bjornsson sternly and those are not human voices. Say, do you smell smoke? And, say, the floor shake!" McClellan's exclamation was drowned in a vibratory roar, like that they had heard earlier, only now they were fairly above its source. Through the heavier noise there ripped a long, shattering crash. Something had happened to the room they stood in. What it was they did not pause to find out with only a vague notion that in some way the room had become much larger, and that this enlargement, together with the jarring quiver of the floor, meant instant peril, Rhodes fairly snatched Cleona from her feet and led a rush for the porch. They were barely in time. As Forrester, last out, crossed the threshold, a great noise of splintering wood and beams that cracked with an almost explosive uproar followed him. 
His companions had not paused on the porch, but Forrester was a young man of that reckless sort of cool-headedness, which, though it run from danger, will turn again at the very edge of safety. The porch felt solid to him. He instantly stopped there and stuck his head back through the doorway. The reception hall, or rather the space it had occupied, was no longer dark. He had a brief glimpse of a huge open space, billowing with clouds of lime-dust and black smoke shot through with ruddy flames. The floor level had apparently dropped some distance, and was no longer level at all, but a steep, uneven slant descending to—what? From the rolling clouds a fierce white focus of light shot blinding rays. The smoke filled his eyes with acrid tears, and as he raised his hands to dash them away, crashing doom shot down from above. The end of a flying beam just missed his face, and he withdrew it hastily. "'By George!' he exclaimed. "'The whole darn house is caving!' and thrust his head forward for further news. Then a heavy hand jerked him away from the door and off the porch. "'Come away from there, you fool!' yelled McClellan in his ear. "'That wall will go in a minute! Don't you know enough to stand from under when a house falls in? Now you beat it over to Undine and turn in a fire alarm. Phone Deering at—no, phone the Lilybank station, that's nearer. Tell him to chase a patrol load out here quick. Don't wait for them nor the department. Get hold of any men you can pick up in Undine, and axes, and back here on the jump, got me?" "'You bet!' came the young man's informal acknowledgment, and he was gone into the darkness. He intended to make his absence from this fascinating scene as brief as was humanly possible. McClellan turned to his companions only to find himself alone. By the light of a ruddy, sullen glare newly sprung into being, he glanced from side to side, but none of the three was visible. The wall before him had not fallen, but through the open doorway smoke poured, only to be beaten back by the wind. Behind it glowed a redness like the very heart of hell. Never in his life, save once, had he seen a fire develop with such amazing celerity. That other conflagration, though, had occurred in a sash and door factory, and had been encouraged by the bursting of a fifty-gallon tank of varnish. One does not expect a stone dwelling-house to flare up into easy flame. The roar of the falling debris warned him that other walls were proving less staunch than the one which faced him but the collapse had begun too early to have been caused by the fire. The entire catastrophe was as incomprehensible as sudden. McClellan dashed off, searching at hazard for the three reckless ones who had come in the car. He had called himself a conscientious man, and it happened to be true. The stout detective felt personally responsible that his party did nothing rash in an effort to rescue that wild Irishman O'Hara who most likely lay dead now in the flaming ruins. He had half encircled the house before he found any trace of those he sought. To his increased surprise not a single outer wall had fallen, though the windows, heat broken now and belching smoke, betrayed what a stone-sheathed welter of flame they enclosed. He knew nothing of the reconstruction that had metamorphosed the Gerard's time-honored residence to so strange an inward form. As a matter of fact, the rear walls of the reception hall and two rooms on either side of it were contiguous to the shaft's inner sheathing, and when the piles beneath finally gave way, that entire wing of the house, including the shaft's side, collapsed, leaving only the outer wall to stand. The two other sides of the shaft overhanging the marsh were not long in following, but the fourth, the solid wall in which was the doorway where Cullen fought, did not fall. It abutted upon a one-story wing built on as an addition, and which covered no portion of the cellar. The doorway led through a passage to a flight of stone stairs, opening in turn upon a suite of rooms reserved by the Lord of Fear for his own use. When McClellan came to an outstanding wing, whose windows were dark and cool, and where a low veranda bespoke possible entrance, he had no reason to think this what it was a point of greater, though different, danger than that from which he had peremptorily snatched Forrester. Seeing the figure of a man just disappearing into the veranda's shadow, he dashed hurriedly after him, still bent on dissuasion. It was no use to shout. 
his voice wouldn't have carried ten feet in that uproar. Once inside, he snapped on his borrowed flash at the same instant that someone else struck a match. The long narrow room he had come into was fogged at one end with thin smoke, but McClellan saw at least two figures immediately ahead of him, one of them holding a match above his head and peering anxiously about. Cleona had again played leader, and with such an instinct for directness as had carried her this time clean out of touch with her anxious support. Just as McClellan reached them his flash disclosed another pair of wide doors standing open in the room's far wall. Instantly both Bjornsson and the lawyer fairly hurled themselves toward that black aperture, and again the conscientious one was forced to follow or give up his mission. He followed. A stone stair led steeply down, ending at a blank white wall. The first two plunged down, their pursuer involuntarily lending the air of his light-ray to their descent, but at the blank wall they turned to the left and abruptly disappeared. The stairway was almost free from smoke, but a wave of heat came up from it. It occurred to McClellan that he was quite possibly about to immolate himself at the altar of other people's recklessness. He hesitated. The air shook to a heavy concussion. It came from beyond the stair-foot and sounded as though a bomb had exploded. All three of his party were probably down there. McClellan swore and ran down the stairs three steps at a time. He hardly expected to come up them again. The whole house would go in a minute, and the recklessness of people throwing away their lives in hopeless attempts at rescue was very trying indeed to Mr. McClellan. When, a minute or so earlier, Rhodes and Bjornsson had arrived at the stair-foot, they discovered that a wide passage opened there and some five yards along it there seemed to be a large rectangular opening in its wall, through which beat a light so white and fierce that even its reflection was dazzling. Dark forms moved against it. The newcomers had hoped for little but to drag Cleona back to safety. But on racing along the passage they found not one but two women at the end of it. And in the center of that brilliant rectangle a huge wild figure of a man that thrust and struck outward desperately. What he was striking at, however, they could not make out till they were fairly abreast of the glaring doorway. The opening was broad and difficult for one man, however powerful, to guard against such assailants as were besieging it. Even as Rhodes arrived, somewhat in advance, a head came thrusting through beside Cullen and under his guard. It was a frightful thing, that head, slimy and dripping, large as a lion's and hideous as a gargoyle's. It thrust through with a writhing motion, at the end of a neck unthinkably long and snake-like. The once skeptical lawyer didn't stop to consider whether what he saw was possible. Again both barrels of the duck-gun spoke together. That explosion was what McClellan had heard, re-echoed by the walls of the passage, and it announced quietus for at least one more of Kennedy's recreations. Hard-dying they no doubt were, but the charge of a double-barreled shotgun at a range of an inch or so is a mighty queller. The neck, with what was left of the head trailing, slid laxly back. Cullen thought the passage was falling behind him and turned, but as Bjornchen shouted, "'All right! We're with you!' he lunged forward again, content to accept reinforcements without stopping to ask why or whence. Bjornsson sprang to one side of him and rose to the other. Shoulder to shoulder they stood across the doorway. The light was blinding and the heat terrific. Half-seeing, they shot and hacked at swimming enemies whose diverse loathsomeness was only equaled by their ferocious determination to pass that doorway. Beyond a twelve-foot-wide area of hot black water, where the recreations thronged, towered a heap of blazing debris that sent its roaring flames and smoke to the very height of the fortress, sucked up by the rushing wind. At the center of the heap was that fierce white focus of light which Forrester had observed and which it seemed no smoke could obscure. Below that again it was terribly hard to see anything, but Rhodes thought a darkness was there, 
as if in falling the beams and walls had made a sort of recess of cavern beneath themselves. And even in the midst of battle, the young lawyer became gradually conscious of a dread worse a hundred times than the facing of all the racing beastliness they fought. The fancy came on him that something hid in the sheltered darkness, something living but that had no right to life, something vague in his thought of a smoke-cloud, and definite in terror as the bogies of childhood days. Bjornson shared the impression, but with a difference. He knew that the darkness was a recess, and the recess a lair, and that what peered forth from it lived without the grace of flesh and blood which made even its distorted creatures endurable to think of. But if there is an evil which is not only of the flesh, so also there is a courage. Knowing, he fought on. Ammunition quickly exhausted, the weapons of Cullen's allies were soon less efficient than his spade. There was little room to swing a gunstock, but now the attack began to seem less vigorous. The black water steamed hot vapor. One or two of the monsters that had been neither shot nor smitten disappeared to rise no more. With scorching face, Rose thanked God for the heat, if it were weakening the enemy more than himself. Probably it was because they were in the water and the doorway on a higher level. No, that was absurd. Heat rose upward. The shotgun's stock landed fairly on the forehead of a neckless, fat-faced abnormality, with the tusks of a wild boar and a frontal carapace that should have been impregnable. It crushed in with ridiculous ease, and the stock flew in a dozen pieces. Rhodes laughed. He had not struck very hard. The heat was terrific. It had softened the beast's skull, no doubt, and the walnut stock of his gun. With the barrels he foiled a clever, monkey-armed fiend, reaching for Cullen's ankle to pull him down. The barrels, too, bent in shattering that arm. The heat, of course. How lucky it was that he himself did not feel at all weakened, any more than his companions. There was a glorious wind blowing from somewhere, a hot wind but laden with vigor. Rhodes was conscious of a kind of enormous vitality in himself, as if he were larger than himself, much larger and stronger. His brain swam dizzily, but his vigor was tremendous, endless. Fire, fire everywhere, and he in the midst of it, part of it, elemental, deathless fire. Demons swam in it, drowning, and he struck at them joyously with a sword of fire. But at this point, regrettable to state, the testimony of Anthony Rhodes became valueless, because he was later quite unable to remember what happened next. In fact, since an unbiased account is desirable, it seems best to fall back upon that unprejudiced, if bewildered witness, Detective McClellan. He arrived on the scene only a few moments after Rhodes and Bjornson, and was present at the final attack, and that he adhered to facts in reporting the affair next day to his chief does him great credit. A less conscientious man would have saved his reputation for veracity by lying. "'That was one scrap that had me guessing, chief.' I didn't know what was happening, nor what had happened, nor what was due to happen. These three guys stood across the door beating and shooting at something beyond. It was hotter than a river-tug stoke-hole, and the light was awful. I tried to squeeze in the doorway, but there wasn't room, and those two women were there, and I couldn't get them to come away. I'd have gone back afterward, but I wanted to get them out of the house where they weren't doing a bit of good. No use. I might as well have been a phonograph five miles off playing the end of a perfect day. Then all of a sudden something come flying through the whiteness beyond the door like a shadow against it, and the next minute this guy O'Hara smashed over backward with a big black thing on him that looks to me like a big monkey. He says afterward it's a live marble statue. Maybe he's Bughouse, and maybe I am. I dunno. There might as well be live statues as some of the other nightmares I saw afterward. Well, anyway, Mr. Rhodes had phoned something about a big monkey out there, so I thought it was that. And here they are, this thing and O'Hara, rolling all over the floor together, 
and me hopping around the outside trying to keep the women out of it, and wanting to shoot, but scared I'd hit the wrong one. Then Mr. Rhodes and this Bjornson party wheels around to see what's going on, and right away there comes scrambling through that doorway an aggregation of—of what is it? Eight-legged, four-legged, three-legged, and no-legged, that, well, when I try to think of them, I just can't seem to get my mind down to details, Chief. But honestly, Ringling Brothers would have paid a million dollars just for their pictures to slap on walls. O'Hara says they were white-colored, and the monkey was white, too, and so it couldn't have been the monkey that jumped him, because what jumped him was black. But the whole bunch was so messed up with mud they might have been pink or baby blue underneath for all anybody could tell. They came plunging through, and Rhodes and Bjornson went down under them. I was clean at the passage, understand, trying to keep those two women out of it, and we just missed being trampled under. For a fact, the brutes didn't pay any attention at all to us. They weren't fighting mad, they were fear-mad, with the fire behind them. I don't know how many there was. There might have been a dozen, or there might have been more. The last one. It was a thing like a kind of spidery cat, and big as any tiger. It jumped clean over the fellows on the floor, and the rash was over, but I could hear the brutes yelling and tearing each other up the stairs, even over all the other racket. I'd emptied my gun as they went, but it might just as well have been a bean-shooter for all the good it did. I didn't reckon to see any of those three guys that had been tramped under get up again, but when I looked, darned if the Irishman and whatever it was he was scrapping with weren't tumbling around just the same as before too busy to know they've been run over, I guess. And this Bjornson, who, I must say, is one of the gamest old guys I ever met, he was just scrambling up. But Rhodes didn't get up, because he's got a busted leg. Bjornson, he looks around kind of wild, with the blood streaming over his face. And then darned if the old whitehead don't jump into that fight to a finish between O'Hara and—and whatever it was. I'd shoved a fresh clip in my gun and was willing enough to take a shot, but—say, Chief, if you'd seen that scrap, you'd know why I hated to mix in personally. If I'd see a man scrapping with a full-grown gorilla, and maybe that's what it was, I'd pot the gorilla if I could, but I'll be darned if I do what Bjornson did. As I says before, he jumps right in and grabs the thing around the neck, trying to jerk its head back. He lasts about five seconds, and then got his. At the time, I couldn't tell just what had happened, but it seems the brute had its teeth comfortably clamped on O'Hara's shoulder and didn't take kindly to interference. It let go, and its head came back all right, and the same minute it gave Bjornson a left-handed sideswipe that landed the poor guy about ten feet away. Then it got back to business, but just that few seconds had given O'Hara his chance and I want to say, Chief, that anything I ever said against that big Irish mick I take back here and now. Fight! Say, I wish you'd seen that scrap! And in the time its head was up, he got one hand on its throat, and the next minute the other. And— Say, Chief, come to think of it, you couldn't strangle a stone statue, even if it was alive, now could you? Mac, said the Chief very solemnly, I am listening to a story on which comment would be, er, cruel. Proceed. All right, don't believe me, then. McClellan's tone was more dogged than injured. I knew you wouldn't anyway, but I have to make my report, and this thing happened just like I'm telling it. Didn't I say at the start I thought it was a gorilla? Though I'll be darned if anybody even saw a gorilla with a face like— well, anyway, it could be choked, for O'Hara did it. That was when I got my first good look at the thing, and, say, I don't like to think about it even now. Makes me kind of sick. No use. You'd have had to see it to understand. I could have plugged it easy then, but I give you my word, I forgot I had a gun in my hand. I just stood there staring. I wanted to run, and I couldn't not with those women behind me. I'd had my arms out, so, keeping them back. 
Isn't it the devil the way women are? If they've got a man in a scrap and think he's getting the worst of it, they'll rush in and never think twice about getting hurt. Back to your animated statuary, Mac. You're wandering. Well, these two had stopped trying to get past me. They were struck still, just like me. He... he strangled it with his hands. And... and... that's enough said. If it was a bad living, it was a worse dying. I've seen a few messy scraps in my time, but this was different. Can't tell you. Makes me sick to think of it. I was never so grateful to anybody in all my life as I was to O'Hara when he straightened up all of a sudden and dragged that thing up with him and pitched it out of the door. He didn't pitch it any little ways, either. It was near as big as him, and he just took it neck and ankles, gave it a couple of swings, and sent it flying across about twelve feet of water right into the heart of the fire. I give you my word, the flames flared up like he'd slung a bag of gunpowder into him. Then O'Hara drops back against the wall and starts laughing, like he'd gone nutty. Claim on me, he gasps out. Claim on me, is it? The claim that he had is the claim he collected. And I think, he says, there's one demon will be making no more claims of any man. I tell you just what he says the detective added rather apologetically, because right then, I guess I was pretty excited myself, but just then it seemed like he'd done something big. Not ordinary big, but tremendous. Like, like, saving a country, or, oh, some darn dangerous thing that everybody ought to pin medals on him for. McClellan paused. Well, said the chief with suspicious calmness, then we got out, that's all. There were some other things I was going to tell you, but I'll be hanged if I will when you look that way. You ought to know me well enough. Wait a minute. Think it over, Mac. Never mind this statue gorilla business. We'll be quite open-minded about that. But could a dozen or so ferocious, ah, uh, gollywogs such as you describe, have been turned loose last night, and no one— absolutely no one have sent in a complaint to this office since?" "'I didn't say turned loose,' retorted McClellan gloomily. "'Oh, not turned loose. Adopted as pets, perhaps, by the neighbors? Chief, I'm done. I knew how it would be, but I'm a conscientious man. You ought to know that. You haven't answered my question.' "'All right.' When we went out, there was a heap of nasty, purplish jelly on the stairs, and some more in a room on the first floor, and some more clear outside the house. A lot of people saw it besides me. Forrester saw it, for one. If you don't believe me, ask him. Oh, I do believe you, Mac, I do. But it's the gollywogs I'm interested in. Where are they? All right, I'll tell the rest, then. The fire flared up, like I said, and that passage was no place to stop and chin in. O'Hara and me and these two girls, who sure are plucky ones, we carried out the wounded between us. Funny. That was a regular reunion down there in the middle of the fire, but nobody had time to be sentimental then. I told you already that this Mr. Bjornson claims to be the father of the girl everybody round Undine had thought was Miss Reed and crazy. She ain't crazy only brought up some place in Mexico where there seemed to have been a lot of queer white people and her mother was one of them. You can get all that straight from Bjornson if you want to. And he says afterward, when he came to, that once he tried to kill O'Hara down in Mex, and here he finds him rescuing this kidnapped girl of his, or she rescuing him, it seems to be a toss-up which, and O'Hara says he don't care a whoop what happened fifteen years ago, just so he gets old Bjornson for a father-in-law now, and a very romantic situation," cut in the chief, but aren't we again straying from our gollywogs? Leave marrying to the minister, Mac, and trot out your animiles. Hang it all, you make it so darn hard. I'll tell you in a minute. We got out of the house, and just in the nick of time, too. 
as we jumped down the steps, there was a flare of flame licked after us that singed the back of my coat. That wing of the house had got so hot from the rest of the place that it must have exploded into flame of itself. Spontaneous combustion, you understand, like the trees do in a forest fire. We get away from there quick, believe me, and then it strikes me as funny that there ain't any string of fire engines around, nor anybody at all but us. I starts cussing Forrester, but five minutes later he's with us with bells on and pretty near every soul in Undine at his heels. He says he ain't been gone over twelve or fifteen minutes. He was right, too, but it had seemed more like fifteen hours to me, straight. Of course, they couldn't do much with the fire, even when the department got there. Besides the start it had, a water main had busted, and they couldn't get any water till they hitched up hose clear into Undine. Well, O'Hara was all messed up, and his shoulder in awful shape, and Mr. Rhodes with a busted leg, and poor old Bjornson so shaken up he couldn't walk. There was a doctor came over from Undine with the crowd, and he fixed him up temporary, and having three cars handy it was no trouble to get him home. I says hospital, but they were all set on going to Rhodes' place, so of course the doctor and me gave in. I wanted answers to a few questions, so I went along, and just as we pulled out they got the water on the fire at last. But O'Hara says to me, they'd best let her burn out and at that the ruins of it should assay fifty-fifty pure gold and devilishness. I wish joy to him that gets it. I says, I'm proud to have known you, Mr. O'Hara, but I wouldn't want any gold that came out of that cellar. And he says, you're a man after my own heart, McClellan, or you'd never have been in at the finish like you was. It wasn't gold that drew you, he says, and I know fear didn't drive you. And as the same may be said of all of us, I'm thinking, Mr. Kennedy was mistaken. For a man to judge the whole world by himself is a dangerous matter. But, he says, the black god was another matter entirely. And then he goes on to tell me all that had happened to him before we arrived. It was like this. McClellan, snapped the chief, are you or are you not intending to answer my question? What became of the animals you say escaped ahead of you from the cellar? The stolid detective clenched his teeth despairingly, but dared evade no longer. When Bjornson came to, he muttered, after we got him out, he—well, he says those heaps of jelly we passed on the stairs and round were the—were the gollywogs, as you call them. O'Hara, he talked to the fellow that was killed, one of the two fellows, Kennedy alias Reed, and claims— They've been turning common, harmless rabbits and cats and such into jelly life that, and then making them over into these regular hellions of brutes. And Bjornson figured that when O'Hara choked the life out of Nakrok, Nakok Yaddle, or some darn name they teed the statue by, the beasts all slumped back into jelly again. I tell you, I don't say anything's true, but just what I saw with my eyes. Exactly. And now I no longer blame you, Mac, for darkly concealing the gollywog's sad fate. So you go home and go to bed. End of chapter 32》Chapter 33 of Citadel of Fear by Gertrude Barrows Bennett this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Citadel of Fear Chapter 33 As One Triumphant And here, rightfully, the story ends, with the end of what was either a very singular biological experiment, or the most extraordinary and sinister invasion by which the race of man was ever threatened. The rest is all surmise, conjecture, the muddling work of many divergent minds. The burning of the old Girard place, together with what was later found in its ruins, and the strange story of the fire survivors, caused considerable excitement at the time and started some controversies of which the ripples have not yet quite subsided. The unpleasant heaps of purplish jelly outside the house had rotted clean away by morning, and had been absorbed by the earth past analyzing. 
it seemed probable to the world at large that the jelly, if it had ever existed, had no connection with the beasts, admitting that they had existed, and that the latter had perished in the fire and been utterly consumed, even to their equally problematical bones. The fact that two alleged human corpses had also vanished could not, however, be explained in this manner. O'Hara testified that the bodies of both Markazuma, alias Marco, and Archer Kennedy, alias Chester T. Reed, had sunk in the flood, one having been already lifeless and the other perishing beneath the fury of his own handiwork. It seems a reason that bodies immersed in mud or muddy water would be safe from the incineration. A number of other things were found in said mud, but no bodies. Ergo, Mr. O'Hara was mistaken. No bodies had ever been there. By part of his own testimony, he had spent at least a portion of his evening's captivity in a dreamy and semi-conscious condition. No doubt this accounted for much that was, well, slightly incredible in the Irish gentleman's testimony. The lady from Mexico, too, was no doubt pardonably mistaken. In moments of excitement, delusion is easy. The Irish gentleman, for instance, believed that he had broken Marco's neck twenty-four hours previous to the fire. No doctor was present. He merely assumed that the man was dead on the strength of his own unprofessional judgment. What more likely than that, O'Hara's back turned, Marco rose and walked away. And Kennedy, in all probability, escaped from the burning house alive and comparatively uninjured. Quite likely, master and man were now in hiding together, and it was recommended that the police bestir themselves and rout them out. Sven Bjornsson, however, disagreed with the world, though he confided his opinion to none but sympathetic ears. He based it on the fact that every one of the jars, boxes, and other golden vessels dug out of the mud were found open. Even he declined to surmise what force had opened them, and thus destroyed every particle of their diabolical contents. But for a time, at least, the flooded cellar must have been highly charged with the stuff. He knew for a certainty that, exposed to air or impurities, it lost power quickly. The men who dug in those ruins were safe enough, but to Bjornsson it was not strange at all that no bodies were found there. They were present, but dissolved as utterly as though the mire had been a kind of temporary quicklime. There being no corpus delecti, Cullen was spared a trial for manslaughter, justifiable or otherwise, and it cannot be truthfully said that he was sorry. He and his dusk lady were really very much in love, and it is a pity to be wasting time in jail or law courts when one wishes to be on one's honeymoon. As it was, the investigation was tiresome enough. It ended at last in clouds of doubt, with a few bright spots of definite decision. A burst water main was found to have caused the flood. That, together with the weakening nature of the building's reconstruction, had brought on its sudden collapse. And the insurance people, after deep pondering, set down the fire as resulting from faulty insulation and crossed wires, a favorite explanation for otherwise inexplicable conflagrations. As to the Golden Temple vessels, the state fell heir to them in lack of any other claimant. They may be seen today in a certain national museum, though their value is considered dubious. Authenticity as Aztec relics has never been properly established, and their gold was found to be a thin coat laid over solid copper. Besides them stands an object of still more dubious value, a black stone, in fact shapeless, yet with an odd suggestion of having once possessed a shape, as if the marble of some old, wicked idol had been melted in a hotter flame than science has ever fanned to being. But there is nothing terrible about it now. It is just a black stone. Of course, it may be that McClellan's first surmise was correct, and that Genghis Khan, magnified and distorted by excited imaginations, was the antagonist conquered for a second time by Cullen. Certainly the pseudo-ape had crouched on the dais, and when it grew too hot beneath the fallen debris, such a brute could have leaped the intervening twelve feet of water as it had leaped the forest glades from tree to tree. At the time Cullen himself believed otherwise. To him the whole matter seemed simple enough then. A demon had claimed him. 
he had conquered the demon in a satisfactorily personal manner, and as to fire out of nothing, flood that wrought swift miracles, and whirlwind that lent the strength of a titan with its breath, why, he had never denied that under the Almighty were powers of good to aid a man as well as evil to crush him. Having met nothing to shake his faith in either his universe or his God, he remained a good Catholic, and the Dusk Lady was duly baptized into that church, loving her lord too well to quarrel with his religion. But though he is sure of her love to-day as he was then, he is not so sure of the nature of that last battle. After meeting the thousand and one contemptuous arguments hurled at their heads, he and his companions became at last sure of nothing about it except that he strangled something and flung it into some kind of fire. And so, of the most somber actor in a very strange drama, little remains but a shapeless stone and an uncertain memory, and that ever growing more dreamlike as it recedes into the past. But on that night of nights it was not like a dream at all. It was clear, clear and bright-like, as had been the sight of Telapaland to Cullen. And when those six first emerged from the burning fortress of fear, they had no more doubt of their adventure's sinister nature, or of its reality, than they had a few moments later of the last strange sight of all, though that was more glorious than sinister. It was a vision all shared, from McClellan, starting on an angry mission in search of Forrester, to Bjornson, just opening his eyes, safe and with his daughter's arms about him. They were among the trees then, some distance from the house. Rhodes lay groaning with the pain of his broken leg, and Cleona had his head in her lap. Cullen, very sick and dizzy, with a mangled shoulder and various other wounds, was leaning against a tree and wondering how a man could have the strength of ten one minute and be weak as a kitten the next. And then it was that McClellan stopped in his tracks with a sharp cry of amazement. The others looked where he pointed. Above the fortress of fear the fumes roared high. In a lull of the gale fire crested it with a fuming tongue of scarlet. And as that fiery tongue soared skyward, a vast, diaphanous form plunged through the lashing tree-branches, plunged through and up and up, and flung itself on the flame that bent roaring before it. A vast, impetuous shouting form, of turbulent plumes and a face of undying youth. Quetzalcoatl, lord of the air, the wind, the victorious wind. Ah, that pure and violent one, gently, patient, and fiercely intolerant, breath of the wind, sweet places, enemy to all foul vapors and morbid vileness. Great deeds he chants of, and hope, and the courage that is not only of the flesh. "'A heathen god, but a staunch friend,' muttered Cullen. "'I'd be less than a friend myself, if I did not admit that I like him.' Bending, the flame streamed out like a banner as a trailing banner of scarlet plumes it followed the shouting one. The End of Citadel of Fear by Gertrude Barrows Bennett This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Every day we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, Protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.